Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Well, this is the last episode of our class, Why Christianity, part 16. We've covered so many different reasons why Christianity is attractive, makes sense, and is worthy of our attention. We've looked at scientific, logical, epistemological, social, psychological, and historical reasons for God's existence, Christ's resurrection, and the gospel's effectiveness. Today, we consider three stories of changed lives. The proof, they say, is in the pudding. Can Christianity deliver healing, forgiveness, and purpose for real people, especially antagonistic people, in our world today? What about people who are deeply entrenched in atheism, partying, or gay activism? Does Christianity work for them? Here now is part 16 of Why Christianity, episode 403, Changed Lives. We've had an eclectic, though somewhat comprehensive class. We've covered a lot of different topics. We've looked at how we know God is real and how we have good intellectual reasons for putting our faith in him. We've seen historical evidence for the resurrection and for the Bible itself. We've looked at the Christian meta-narrative. You remember that? The creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and how that overarching storyline helps us to make sense of our world, what's so great about our world, what's so flawed about our world, and ourselves, and what can happen in what we call salvation, as well as the age to come. We've looked at how Christianity handles morality, suffering, identity, inclusiveness, the heart, and community. That's a lot of stuff. It, it is an eclectic mix. You know, it's not all science-y. I mean, there was a bit of science in there, and some of you got nervous. And then there was a little bit of history in there, and we went into epistemology land for, for one session. That was exciting for those epistemologists out there. You know, then we've spent some time looking at how the Bible makes sense of different things that are important. Uh, we've seen now also how Christianity is an adventure. And if you want to join Jesus the Revolutionary, you are going to be a revolutionary in your own context. Uh, so now what I want to do is return to a text that I read to you a couple of sessions ago, Titus chapter 3, verse 3, which says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So that's what we call the B.C. description. The before Christ you... The before Christ me was like this. And then verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His own mercy. Isn't that wonderful? According to God's own mercy, He saved us. God doesn't save us because He looks at us and He says, You know what? David's done a lot of good deeds this year. God is not Santa Claus. He doesn't, he doesn't tally up a little list and say, you know, I, I think I'm going to save David because he's just done, you know, over 700 good things this year and, 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 that's, and that's it. Now he's going to be... No, it's according to his mercy that God saves us. 
Uh, back to the verse. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, which He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I just love the completeness of that paragraph, taking us all the way from who we were before, right through the salvation process, and ending us up with the hope of eternal life in the end. And I think that a lot of times we put limitations on God. And our faith is too little. And we just kind of get used to the humdrum reality of our own lives and those lives of the people that we're associated with around us, whether students or coworkers or family members or neighbors. And we just think, however so-and-so is, is just the way they're always going to be. And our faith is too small. Remember Jesus used to say that to his disciples, oh, you of what? Little faith, right? It's like Littlefoot, the dinosaur. No, little faith is what Jesus would say to his followers. And I think we fall into that, too. We, we look at the atheist with the Ivy League degree, and we say, I can't reach that guy. We look at the rock star with all the tattoos and the dreadlocks and the drug addiction, and we say, what am I going to say to him? We see the gay activist and... Uh, the expert in French existentialism, and we say, I don't even know where to start with this person. They're just going to outmaneuver me as soon as I start talking. And I think that sometimes we trick ourselves out. So what I want to do is share with you three testimonies of people who have had their lives changed. Because in the end, the proof's in the pudding. I mean, look, Christianity is not just a worldview or a philosophy or a system of ethics. Ultimately, Christianity is a belief, a faith in a living God. And if it's not that, then it's dead. So first up, we have Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel grew up an atheist. He went to law school at Yale. You ever heard of Yale University? Yeah, some of you might have heard of it. He became an investigative journalist for the Chicago Tribune for 14 years. So this is what we might call a successful person. You have the Yale Law degree. You are an investigative journalist. You're established. He's won awards. 14 years. And he says about himself, for most of my life, I was an atheist. I thought the idea of an all-loving, all-powerful creator of the universe, I thought it was stupid. I mean, my background is in journalism and law. I tend to be a skeptical person. I was the legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, so I needed evidence before I'd believe anything. He goes on to say uh, that people created God because they were afraid of death. This is what he believed. That, that's his faith. His faith is that your faith is because you're a chicken. You're afraid of death, and that's why you believe in God. Or... He also said, I lived an immoral, drunken, profane, narcissistic, self-destructive kind of life. You know, this is him looking back on it. I think in the moment he wouldn't use those words to describe it. He would probably say, I'm a fun guy. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, one, one day he and his wife pictured here, they were at a restaurant and their daughter started choking and a woman swooped in and just in the nick of time saved the daughter you know, got, got her to be able to breathe again. 
And the wife of Lee, Leslie Strobel, said to her how lucky she was that this woman, Alfie Davis, was there at this restaurant at this just right time so that she could swoop in and save her daughter. And this woman it was a woman of faith, Alfie Davis, and she said, luck had nothing to do with it. God told me to come here. I was going to go to the restaurant down the street, and I felt in my spirit that God told me to come here. And now I know why. It's because he wanted me to save your little girl. Okay. I mean, if you don't believe in God, what are you going to do with that? I mean, you can't, you can't ignore the fact that your, your child is alive because a health professional happened to be sitting right there and was able to save her life. So she started going to church. One day, Lee, Lee says, one day my wife came up to me. She'd been an agnostic. And she said, after a period of spiritual investigation, she had decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ. I thought, you know, this is the worst possible news I could get. Isn't that so funny? I thought she was going to turn into some sexually repressed prude or was going to spend all her time serving the poor in Skid Row somewhere. I thought this was the end of our marriage. How would you like that for a spouse? Somebody that looks at your life-changing spiritual awakening as the worst possible news ever. But she did this verse right here. This is what Leslie Strobel did. She did 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Lee continues, But in the ensuing months, I saw positive changes in her values, in her character, in the way she related to me and the children. It was winsome, it was attractive, and it made me want to check things out. So I went to church one day, uh, mainly to see if I could get her out of this cult that she had gotten involved in. But I heard the message of Jesus articulated for the first time in a way that I could understand it. That forgiveness is a free gift and that Jesus Christ died for our sins that we might spend eternity with him. And I walked out saying, I was still an atheist. But also saying, if this is true, this has huge implications for my life. And so I used my journalism training and legal training to begin an investigation into whether there was any credibility to Christianity or to any other world faith system for that matter. So he spent the next year and nine months investigating what I call the sine qua non. That's the without which not. The, uh, the essential heart of Christianity, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Because if the resurrection of Jesus happened, Christianity is true. And if it didn't happen, if it's not a historical event, then Christianity is definitely false. It doesn't necessarily mean God doesn't exist, but it means that Christianity doesn't work. So that's what he did. He began asking questions. He asked questions like, was Jesus actually crucified? How do we know that? When they crucified him, did he die? Or was he just severely wounded and recovered later? All right, so he died. Was he buried in a common grave or in his own tomb? Was the tomb really found empty? How do we know the tomb was found empty? These are the questions he's asking. Did, the, did people see the resurrection? You know, the Bible says nothing about that. 
There's no, there's no narrative that records what the resurrection was like. There was nobody there except for Jesus, and he was dead. And then he said, well, what about these resurrection appearances? You know, isn't that just the same thing as an Elvis sighting? Right? And, he, and he works it through, and he's an investigator, and he's not for Christianity. He's just sort of like mildly curious because of his wife. And he works it all through, and he says, I did that for a year and nine months until November the 8th of 1991, and on that day, I realized that in light of the torrent of evidence flowing in the direction of the truth of Christianity, it would require more faith for me to maintain my atheism than to become a Christian. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. It would take more faith to remain an unbeliever than to become a believer because of the evidence pointing in that direction. He calls it a torrent. Think of it like this, a river that is moving at a quick pace, and you're trying to stand still or go against the current. It's hard. That's how he felt. He goes on, because to be an atheist, I would have to swim upstream against this torrent of evidence pointing toward the truth of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't do that. I was trained in journalism and law to respond to truth. And so on that day, I received Jesus Christ as my forgiver and as my leader. And just like with my wife, my life began to change. Over time, my values, my character, the purpose of my life began to be transformed over time in a way that, as I look back, I can't imagine staying on the path I was on compared to the adventure, to Dan's point earlier, and the fulfillment and the joy of following Jesus Christ. So this Ivy League journalist, atheist, turned his whole life around. And what was the real, you know, how did that get started? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 13, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Verse 16, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It was his wife. It wasn't somebody with four PhDs that could speak seven languages. It was the consistent, authentic witness of his wife who had this experience in the restaurant. That's what got her attention. And then she opened her heart to God, and God began to change her heart and her life. And he saw that, and he said, i got to look into it. Do you think you could do that much? I mean, it's not like she wrote tomes and did all this re that was him. All she did was love him the way God asks us each to love each other. And of course, those of you who know Lee Strobel maybe have seen his famous movie that came out, Case for Christ. And he's written more than 20 books in the last couple of decades. And he's sold more than 10 million copies. He's been on ABC's 20 for 20. He's been on Fox News, CNN. He even had a little television show for a while. I checked today on Twitter, he's got 198,000 followers. All because a nurse wasn't afraid to listen to the voice of God to enter that restaurant. All because a wife said, you know what, this guy, he's a knucklehead. He's hard. But you know what, I'm just going to do what God says anyhow and see what happens. That's why we have a Lee Strobel today. Look at number two here, Brian Welch. 
typical guitar-playing teenager with rock star ambitions. Uh, somehow or other, he ended up in a band named Korn, that's Korn with a K, in 1993. Uh, he started experiencing success. He says, I remember after the release of Korn's first album, we were on tour with Ozzy Osbourne. During the middle of the tour, our album went gold. Ozzy and his wife Sharon gave us champagne after we got off stage. That's when I first felt like a rock star. It was just surreal. He had a wife and a daughter, but his wife had a drug addiction to methamphetamines. So uh, over time, she wasn't able to take care of their daughter, and she abandoned her. She found a babysitter. She called her husband, who was on tour, and said, look, I'm out. So I got a sitter, but she's yours. I can't do this. So he had to figure out what to do. He became a single dad, and his decision was to take her on the road with him because that's his career, that's his livelihood. She, he had bodyguards uh, pushing the stroller around and, and watching his little daughter, and he's continuing to live the rock star lifestyle. And uh, he says that my dream came true way more than I ever dreamed about. For most of us, this doesn't happen, so we don't really have to worry about it. You know, your wildest dreams just remain your wildest dreams. His wildest dreams came true, and he says, even more than I dreamed. I made more money. I played bigger shows. I had houses, cars. I tried drugs. I tried sex. I tried everything to get pleasure of this life. I thought I could fulfill my life with all this stuff. And it looks like he got a couple of tattoos along the way. I used to think if my dreams could just come true, well, they came true, but they didn't fulfill me. I got so down, I just wanted to die. I thought to myself, what's this life? This life doesn't matter, and who will care if I die? Sure enough, even though he swore he would never do it, he started using drugs himself consistently. And by 2005, his daughter was six years old, and he had lost control. This is what he says about himself. He says, I ended up with an everyday crippling addiction to methamphetamine. And everything that I said about my ex-wife came true for me. I sunk to the lowest gutter I could ever think of. I would spend time with my kid, and I would still be on it because I needed it to function. I would get up in the morning and have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and snort meth and then take her to school. That was his normal. And then one day, of all people, his real estate broker, a man named Eric, who he had somewhat become friends with, said to him, you know what, Brian, I know this is weird and I don't usually do this, but I was reading the Bible and there's this verse that just jumped out at me and, and I think you would be interested in it. And he gave him this verse, Matthew eleven, twenty-eight. 28, says, come to me, this is Jesus speaking, come to me all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And he just said, hey, just take that verse and think about it. And just left it at that. So what did Brian Welch do? You know, he, he started reading this verse. He started thinking about this verse. He even got a little dictionary out. He, this is the way he describes it. I remember all tweaked out, looking up in the dictionary, weary. I looked up, burdened. And I pulled the scripture apart. I'm weary and burdened, and I need rest for my soul. 
that verse, that, that scripture, it just started to find a way into a crack, just a little crack in his heart. The verse cried into his soul. A couple of weeks later, you know what this Eric did? He had the guts to say, hey, why don't you come to church with me sometime? Why don't you come and, and just check it out, see what it's like? And so that's what he did. He came into the church, and they had a little altar call at the end. And uh, Welch says, I didn't know if it was real, but I said a prayer to receive Christ at the church. Then I went home and did what I always did. I neglected my daughter and took my drugs. <laughs> well, after he took his drugs, he felt really guilty that day. And he started praying, and he started crying out, and he started saying, just take it away, take it away, take it away. He broke through to heaven. He broke through. He says he had this bizarre ecstatic experience where it became clear that God was more powerful than meth. He's on it, and he's having a God experience. He's on drugs having a God experience. And the, drug, and the God experience is better than the drug experience. It's interesting, right, how, how God would meet this man at this moment, you know, where he's, he's, he's said he believed in Jesus, but yet he's still stuck in his sin. He says, I felt so much fatherly love from heaven, and it was like, I don't condemn you. I love you. I love you. It was just love, and instantly that love from God came into me. It was so powerful that the next day I threw away all my drugs and I quit corn. I said, I'm quitting corn and I'm going to raise my kid the right way. I got the love of God coming into me and then it came out of me to my kid. It changed me. God changes lives. God changes lives. And so he was devoted to raising his, his daughter on the strength of this experience. He changed his whole life. He quit. I mean, everybody thought he was crazy. You don't quit when you're on top. You quit once you're like uh, that old beetle there with Barack Obama. That's when you quit. <laughs> you don't quit when you're on top. And so you know what he did? He, he, he got on a plane, he went to Israel, and he got baptized in the Jordan River. And when he came home, you know, he tried to parent his kid and become a Christian. He wrote a whole book about it. Save me from myself is what he called it. And the subtitle is, how I found God, quit corn, kicked drugs, and lived to tell my story. <laughs> you can get it on Amazon if you want. I don't know if it's any good, uh, but I, I suspect it is pretty good. The, what, I, what I'm relating to you is from the book, I Am Second, which has a, a number of these different testimonies in it. All right, on to number three, David Bennett. He grew up going to a Christian boys' school in a suburb outside Sydney, Australia. He noticed uh, as a, a young teenager that he was attracted to boys, and so at 14 years old, he came out as gay. He abandoned Christianity at that point and dabbled into New Age spirituality. And one day, this is just the greatest story, one day he's there with his friend, uh, I think her name was Emma, and, the, and, and she says, let's go, let's go see a fortune teller. Let's go see, for, let's see like, some of these spiritual things and see what they have to say about us. And he's like, he's an atheist. He, he, actually, he's an agnostic. An agnostic is an atheist that's sort of like open, uh, at least as he describes it. And so they go, and he doesn't really want to be there, and this is what happens. We sat down at the table. She looked into my eyes for a moment, then pulled out her deck. Shuffling it, she placed the deck face down on the table and then drew tarot cards from the, the top placing them face up in front of me, 
until a full reading had been laid out. I was skeptical, almost amused by the spectacle. People believe in this stuff? I mean, it's fun, but seriously? Rose inspected, that's the fortune teller in this case, Rose inspected my cards. She seemed to be consulting a spirit guide in the form of a Native American sketched on a paper next to her. Suddenly, she looked at me in amazement. Incredible! You are very blessed. I need to tell you this now. You're a child of the light, destined to be with the greatest mediator in the spiritual realms, Jesus Christ. He has chosen you. It's a fortune teller telling him that Jesus has chosen David. This guys he's not just gay, he's a gay activist. He's the kind of guy on the college campus that would go and find the Christian flyer, take it down and put the gay flyer on top of it or in his place. This is, this, this is the kind of, he does not like, well, you'll see. I was a bit glazed for the rest of my reading, not really listening to her half hour of babbling about the various cards laid before. Jesus Christ? Back at the cafe, I fumed, Emma, I think that medium is actually an undercover Christian evangelist. <laughs> she sipped her latte and cackled. A what? She said, I was destined to be with Jesus? I don't think she knew who she was talking to. Maybe she's right, David, Emma said, matter-of-factly. I made a face. What do you mean? There's no way I'd ever become a Christian. Mark my words, she's a con artist. I used to be a Christian, she said. Maybe it's true, Dave. I shook my head furiously. I hate Christianity. So time went on. I, don't, I can't tell you his whole story. He just wrote a whole book about it called A War of Loves, which I highly recommend. I read it. It's, it's a fascinating um, autobiography. But eventually, as time goes on, he ends up in a pub, and he spots this a lady named Madeline, a, a young graduate, a, a recent graduate of college, and she was a finalist in a short film competition. And they had talked about her short film in his screenwriting class, and he spotted her in the pub, and he's like, I could score an interview here for the student magazine, and it'll be the featured article. So he goes over to her. He doesn't really know her, but he, he admires her, and he thinks that her, her film is really great because it's about... Uh, people with disabilities, and it, it was very moving, and it was like social justice type thing. And uh, he says to her, how did you become a finalist? You just graduated. That's his leading journalist question, right? How, how did you do this? That depends, she said. Do you want the real answer or the interview answer? I laughed, unprepared for what would follow. The real answer, of course. She says, God led me to make the film. This guy, he can't get away from it. A thousand objections flooded me as I thought of this God who stood in the way of my community's progress in society. And yet, Madeline wasn't like the other moralizing, intolerant, anti-intellectual, homophobic, anti-feminist Christians I'd met. It's a mouthful. She explained that she too struggled with Christian stereotypes and the small-mindedness found in parts of the Christian community. The key word in John 3.16, she said, was whoever. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I realized Madeline didn't see my homosexuality as a hindrance to knowing God. She clearly wanted my community to find the same love she had discovered. Madeline paused, 
I knew she had seen that my reaction to her faith wasn't positive. Only my admiration for her work prevented what otherwise could have been a very rude response. She says, do you think there is a God? She asked. Not a hint of ulterior motive or trying to convert me, just an open question. Well, I'm basically an atheist, but I believe there is a something, I guess. I'm a spiritual person, and I think you have to be blind to believe there's absolutely nothing behind life, I said, looking down at my drink. I just don't like organized religion. I'm gay, so I know this Christian God isn't an option for me. I've never understood how, if he existed, he'd give me these desires, then condemn me. I expected her to quibble or awkwardly change the subject like many of my Christian friends, but Madeline didn't hesitate. David, have you ever experienced the love of God? And that, that was the question. That was the question. Because it sounds too good to say no to at that point. You know, and he doesn't want to say no and be intolerant and, and narrow himself, right? So she says, have you ever experienced the love of God? Of course, he has to say no. And at which point she asks, would you like to experience the love of God? Do you mind if I pray for you? You know, he's got all these, this like internal battle in his head, like, I don't want this Christian wacko to pray for me, but I also don't want to say no, because that would make me seem closed. So he says, sure, you could pray for me. And so she, be she begins praying for him, and this unbelievable God experience happens to him, where he feels God's presence, it's like a tingling in his head, and then it feels like he's, something's being poured on him. He says, uh, for him, time slowed down, and it was still and peaceful, and he felt love coursing through him like electricity. And then God started speaking to him. You know, she's praying. They're in a bar. She's praying. And he just starts hearing the voice of God. He hears, he hears the voice, do you want me? You know, and then a little bit later, do you want me? And then one more time, do you want me? And he's, and he's got this internal battle because he doesn't want to betray his whole people, his identity, everything else. But at the same time, like... He really does want to experience the love of God. And so he says, yes. He uh, says he, he felt like he was breathing, but he wasn't really breathing. And, and, she, and Madeline's explaining to him, she's like, that's the Holy Spirit. Like, you're experiencing God. This is a real thing. And uh, he left the, the, the pub a little confused, a little disoriented, like, so am I a Christian now? <laughs> so he goes and he, he, and he uh, visits his mom. And uh, she had become a Christian a couple years earlier, and it, it caused a lot of strife in the home because he said, I don't see how you could choose the God who hates me over your own son. That's what he said to her. And she said, this was her comeback. It was, because of God, I can love you better. And he didn't like it, you know, but he's like, all right, I, I, I see what you're saying there, but I still don't like your faith. So he came, came home to his mom and he said, you're not going to believe what happened. I just became a Christian. And she said, oh my goodness. Mm. There was a prophecy about you. He's like, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean a prophecy? Three months earlier at Christmas lunch, he's there with his family and he's got an uncle and an aunt that are hardcore Christians and he hates them. Uh, and he was, he was seated next to them or across from them and of course they started arguing about truth, whether it's a relative or an absolute truth and all this. 
He got angry and he left the table. And after he left the table, uh, his uncle said to his mother, I saw the Holy Spirit on him. He's going to become a Christian in three months. Isn't that so weird? And, and, he's, and he's hearing that. He's like, uncle, uncle prophesied about me? Like, I don't even like that guy. And here he was saying that he's a Christian exactly three months later. And so what does he start doing? He starts to, to pursue God. And, it, you know, he's, it's a long journey. But eventually where he, where he lands in his book, A War of Loves, subtitled The Unexpected Story of a Gay Activist Discovering Jesus, is to label himself as a, quote-unquote, celibate gay Christian. So he still feels attractions to the same sex, but he chooses to remain celibate for Christ. Has struggled a lot with Christians and the gay community because nobody really likes him. <laughs> and so one of his main uh, desires is to, is to sort of like open a space in either of those, or both of those, ideally, where the gay community could like respect gay Christians who choose to follow Jesus without uh, pursuing romantic relationships, and that the church would accept gay Christians who, you know, like I just said, the same thing. So uh, now he's pursuing a PhD at Oxford in theology. So we've got a heavy metal rock star, party animal, extremely successful, hopelessly addicted to meth. We've got uh, a law-educated Yale man, super successful in the journalism world. And we've got David Bennett, a young Australian gay activist who hated Christianity. And what did our God do? He reached these people. He, you know, not against their will, but as soon as there was a little crack, you know, he's sending people in there. And, and he's, he's working with their hearts so that they could be saved. And more than anything else, this is why I'm a Christian. You know, the class is called Why Christianity? This is why, I'm, it's because, that, because my God does this. And he saves a Rosaria Butterfield. And he saves a Jackie Hill Perry. And he saves wicked people, a Manasseh in ancient Israel. This is why a Louis Zamperini, after he's so damaged that in the middle of the night he wakes up straddling his wife, choking her out because of PTSD in World War II after the Japanese tortured him. That's the, these, these are the people that God saves, and he saves you. And he did this, he did this for me. 19-year-old punk, a rebellious failure who had been academically dismissed, mired in partying, womanizing, pursuing pleasure, without hope and without God, he reached me. And he's not dead. God is still alive. He's still reaching people. He's changing people's lives, right? So we, but you, but you got to have faith. You can't say, okay, he's not going to listen to me. Oh, she's never going to listen to what I have to say. She's too, she's too far gone. There's no, I mean, look at, look at these people. They're so different from each other. They're so different. They're from different walks of life, and there are a million people in between there, and God can reach any of them if you will only open your mouth when he directs you, when there's an opening, right? I mean, this is, this is the exciting adventure that is our faith, is being on the front lines and having some little part to play, to be that real estate broker, to be that wife, to be that husband, to be that 
filmmaker in a bar who's getting interviewed and has the guts to say, do you want the real answer or the interview answer? That's all she said, right? And then she said, it was God. I'll just be honest with you, it was God. That's what started him on this whole thing. Well, not started him, but that's what facilitated this whole experience. And then she had the, the guts to say, have you ever experienced the love of God, David? That's a good question. You should ask that to somebody, like, not to start with, probably, but, you know, like, you start talking, have you ever experienced the love of God? So how awesome it is that we get to, to partner with this kind of work in the world. That's a life well lived, don't you think? Well, that brings this episode and this series to a conclusion. What did you think? Come on to restitutio.org and leave your comments or question. Would love to hear feedback from you. I really appreciated these particular stories because they so well illustrate the power of Christianity to change people's lives who are so against Christianity and then come to see that it not only has excellent grounding warrants for its claims, but also that it works in real life. And ultimately, for so many of us, that is really just the most important part of a religion or philosophy or way of life is like, does it work? The pragmatic element. And this is so often overlooked in Christian apologetics classes, so I'm glad we got to do a little bit on it here in this episode. wanted to read out a comment from Lloyd E. Scott Jr., who wrote in on episode 366, Who Was Christ Before the Creeds? And uh, if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend you go back and take a listen to it. It's a journey of a pastor and a church planter from the Churches of Christ in Australia who came to see through a process of investigation that the Jesus of the creeds, like the Nicene Creed, the Constantinopolitan Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed of the 4th and 5th centuries is different than the Christ found in the scriptures themselves. So uh, this is what uh, Lloyd E. Scott Jr. said. He said, enjoyed Jeff's journey, went through a similar journey within the Evangelical Free Church of America. The final result was that I could no longer formally minister in the E-Free Church, but was not defrocked. I am retired now at age 75 years and have found no local fellowship since my own faith brother moved to Delaware recently. My D-men is from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and my THM for Dallas Theological Seminary. My career ministries were as a U.S. Navy chaplain and as a State of Connecticut correctional chaplain, having formerly retired from both careers. Since theology is systematic, it was a correct biblical anthropology that ultimately freed me, for it clearly does not allow a Trinitarian take on Scripture, for there is no support for Greek philosophical Gnostic dualism, which is an anthropological must to even contemplate this false doctrine delineated in the creeds. Wow, that's a mouthful. Thanks for writing in, Dr. Lloyd Scott. Appreciate uh, hearing your voice on this episode. And this episode is so important, it's really just done so well. So many people have downloaded it, Christ Before Creeds, Who Was Christ Before the Creeds by Jeff Dibel, episode 366. Um, And at the end of this episode, he mentioned that he had a book and that he was working on. And uh, I've been working with Jeff and a team of others to make this book a reality. And uh, we'll be giving more information about that shortly. But uh, just to let you know, 
it's pretty much all done. So stay tuned for more information about that. You'll be able to get that book on Amazon shortly. And we are very hopeful that this book will be able to spread this truth to many others as well. It's the sort of book that you could give to a friend, to a family member, to a neighbor with whom you're having this conversation about who is Jesus or questions about the Trinity, and that you will not be embarrassed by. It's the sort of book that is kind to people that disagree, and it's the sort of book that really uh, moves along at, at a slow enough pace for someone who is considering this topic for the first time, but fast enough so as not to get bogged down in the weeds of the extremely nuanced exegesis that can sometimes happen, sometimes necessarily so, in conversations of this nature. So, so uh, I, I just wanted to plug that book a little bit as comments are still coming in on this episode from last November. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening here to the end. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll catch you next week where I've got some exciting interviews with a conditional immortality author, uh, a Baptist from New Zealand by the name of Warren Prestige. So stay tuned for that. Next week, I've got a few from him that uh, relate to his book, Life, Death, and Destiny, a very good book. I highly recommend. Uh, So we'll talk about that next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.